While there's plenty to keep you busy in New Orleans, there's also a lot to see and do up the Mississippi River. Coming up, local guide Andrew Ferrier recommends his favorite places to explore around his home turf in southern Louisiana. In the middle of Louisiana State University's campus in Baton Rouge, for example, is a piece of human architecture that predates the Egyptian pyramids. Germany is a leading member of the European Union, but news from Deutschland doesn't often make the headlines in the U.S. So we'll check in with Munich-based journalist Stefan Wagner. He covers the news from North America for German publications, and he'll update us on the issues Germany's 81 million residents are tackling. There's also a new generation of Germans, and they have a right to have their own country without forgetting about the past. And despite challenges this year, most people are eager to travel again. Let's hear how it's been going for you. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Have you been able to pick up your travel plans where you left off after we all had to stay home during the pandemic closures? We'll check in with listeners a little later in the hour and hear how their latest overseas adventures worked out. And a journalist from Munich tells us how they're facing the major issues of the day in Germany and how it all compares with what we wrestle with here in the United States. Let's open today's Travel with Rick Steves on a domestic note with day trip ideas for exploring southeast Louisiana. New Orleans can keep any visitor happy and occupied for days, but the charm and attractions don't stop at the city limits. It's worth it to wind your way upriver, even by boat or bike, or to take a road trip up the Mississippi to explore and see more of what Louisiana and the Delta are all about. Our guide today is Andrew Ferrier. He's a guide with free tours by foot in New Orleans, and he was raised upriver in a small historic town of St. Francisville. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So that's an interesting concept. Everybody goes to New Orleans, but you don't hear too many people thinking about using it as a springboard for exploring the area nearby. If you have a little extra time or if you've been there before and you want to try something new, what should we know about side tripping? I think the thing that's most familiar to a lot of New Orleans travelers is the idea of doing a quick day trip out of the city for a wetlands tour, what we usually call a swamp tour, or for a plantation visit. And certainly the idea of going up the Mississippi gets you in contact with that kind of stuff. So there's a nature element. The river itself is sublime, and you've got the the beautiful live oak trees that grow all along it. But it also is the commercial driver of all of New Orleans's history. So as you go up and down it, you see the remnants of indigenous architecture. You see what's left of plantations, and you see what replaced them. You see the the huge petrochemical sites, sometimes Mm. surrounding plantation houses that give a more contemporary view of Louisiana's livelihood than plantation houses alone can do. Boy, talk about diversity when you think about modern-day industry and then um, what do you call from before the Civil War, antebellum. Uh, antebellum is our, our favorite Latin word for that. That's antebellum right. architecture. And then you got the natural wonders. You also have that indigenous, you called it indigenous architecture. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so the Mississippian culture, which is the main indigenous culture that existed pre-colonially up and down the Mississippi River, was a culture that built really things on the scale of cities. There's an enormous remains of a city, an archaeological site at this point in the area around St. Louis. 
But from Baton Rouge on upwards, you find these huge mound structures. So in mm -hmm. the middle of Louisiana State University's campus in Baton Rouge, for example, is a piece of human architecture that predates the Egyptian pyramids. Like these things are some of the most ancient architecture in the world, hmm. and they look like hills. But we don't have hills in South Louisiana. They start to be a natural feature as you go a little further north. So when you see them you tend to be able to distinguish them from the kind of things that nature made. And if some society just used wood, 2,000 years later, that wood is long gone and all you have left is mounds? For sure. Some of them were the base of built structures. Others, oftentimes the, the intention behind these things is somewhat mysterious because there's sort of a civilizational collapse that precedes colonization. And then when the Spanish first come into the region, they bring these extremely contagious diseases that are believed to have killed more than half of the people living in the region. Mm. So even the knowledge among indigenous people that French colonists met in the 1700s, the knowledge of what those structures were for wasn't entirely there, and archaeology today can only do so much. And speaking of cataclysms, you had this uh, horrific Civil War period when much of the South was just torched. Uh, how did the antebellum architecture in Louisiana fare? Was it all destroyed or was it in a corner of the Confederacy where some of the buildings survived the war? So the kind of Sherman's March type destruction that happened in some of the South, the out and out burning of cities, mm -hmm. you didn't see that in Louisiana. Individual houses, for sure, although as often as not, the story is of long, long neglect rather than instantaneous right. destruction in the course of the war. And that story varies a it lot. It takes money to keep something from just collapsing over time, and money is comes from tourism generally. What is the controversy or what is the latest thinking of, you know, having a plantation or a statue of, uh, of Andrew Jackson on Jackson Square in New Orleans, you know? Uh, how much discussion is there about um, the appropriateness of even visiting these places? Yeah, I will say, like, I think for a lot of the people who live here, and I'm, I'm risking speaking for people with very different perspectives from myself, um, statues are in a very different sort of educational category than something like a plantation site. So the immersive element on something with something like a plantation, really, I think I don't know anybody who I've spoken with who's, who's serious about education in Louisiana who doesn't see an opportunity there. The big change that you've seen in the last, I'll, I'll give it about a decade figure just for simplicity, is that there is a lot more interest and a lot more openness with the element of the lives of enslaved people, what happened after the Civil War. I mean, mm -hmm. a great example is within biking distance of the city, actually, which is a little bit of a civil rights trail if you go up the Mississippi from New Orleans out into the country. You can find the Destrehan Plantation, which not only was one of the sites involved in the largest slave revolt in U.S. history, something that is unequivocally a really important piece of the country's story and which was brutally put down with executions at that site. It also was a plantation that after the Civil War became the biggest success story of the Freemans Bureau, this organization, huh. federal government yeah. organization that tried to look for graceful ways to help former enslaved people and non-enslaved people, white people in many cases, transition out of the hardships of the war and of slavery successfully. And this was a plantation run for some time by former enslaved people pretty successfully. Yeah, I, can, I mean, what better brick-and-mortar opportunity to have a place where you can learn from history than to find a surviving plantation and use it as a teaching tool. 
Absolutely. And those stories are being told a lot more now, the ones yeah, that, that I mentioned, than what you tended to see more of a uh, more of a kind of gone with the wind view. Yeah, 20 years ago, you'd go to a plantation so. and be a sort of a fanciful gone with the wind experience. And would you like some tea? And now it's, it's a much more of a, a reality travel experience. And I would imagine that's more rewarding for you as a tour guide. Absolutely. I, I cut my teeth guiding on plantations and 100 percent now, you know, having learned a great deal more about history than when I was working during the summers in high school. I think, you know, when you know how things went, you want to be able to share a broader picture. You, you want to find an artful way to do it that is going to make people think and not just suffer because some of this history is really difficult, but it is important and there's a lot of opportunity there. Andrew Ferrier is one of the most creative free spirits you can meet in New Orleans. He's a writer, actor, video host, and producer, and he guides visitors around the city and upriver with free tours by foot New Orleans. He's our guide to day trip sites just beyond the city right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is andrewferrier.com, and that's F-A-R-R-I-E-R. Hey, Andrew, when we're thinking about traveling out of the, the big city... What are some of your options for some fun-loving transportation modes? Yeah, I'm a great lover of biking, and New Orleans is a city that's pretty flat, so it's a place where you can get a lot of scenery in without necessarily having to be a super athletic biker. And fortunately, from the city, while most of the riverfront along New Orleans itself is industrial still today— there's an area that we call the Fly, part of Audubon Park, from which point you have a bike path going up on the east bank of the river, the side where most of the tourist areas of New Orleans are located, that goes about 30 miles. And so you can get in any length up to about 60 miles round trip mm. that takes you well outside the city along that plantation corridor into the industrial area. You see incredible trees. You get these civil rights related sites. Huh. That's the stretch that I would really strongly recommend biking. That sounds wonderful. Hey, Ed, tell me when we when we hear the word bayou, what is that? So a bayou, bayou is actually a, a Choctaw word. This is one of the indigenous languages of the area. And it means something sort of like a river, but that can flow in either direction. So if a river, say, breaks its banks, then the tendril of water that extends from it, if it gets into another body of water, can form a bayou where when the river is high, the water in the bayou flows one way. When, say, the lake is high, like Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans, the water can flow the other way. So you end up with still water a great deal of the time, but it can kind of move back and forth. Andrew Ferrier is a native Louisiana, and he guides for free tours by foot New Orleans. He also hosts many of their YouTube videos with tips for exploring the city's neighborhoods and legends and even avoiding its tourist traps. We have a link with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So we've got uh, just a couple minutes, and I want to talk about two things, Baton Rouge and your hometown, St. Francisville in Louisiana. First of all, Baton Rouge is the state capital, right? Is it worth taking time away from New Orleans to go to Baton Rouge? So most strongly, I, I think Baton Rouge, it is a city that is less dressed up for visitors, and so you get kind of an earnestness and an unguardedness. That is something novel. And there's a corridor that you can take through Baton Rouge along Highland Road that would take you by a beautiful arboretum that would take you by antebellum revival architecture and ultimately into LSU, which is a really impressive campus and the huge project of our very famous governor, Huey Long. Hmm. You also have the state capitol, which is also a Huey Long project, and it's hmm. bonkers to look at. They also have their own kind of Spanish colonial neighborhood along the lines of New Orleans's French Quarter. So you can make a great day out of passing through Baton Rouge. 
And St. Francis Phil's right on the other side. Yeah. St. Francis Phil, your hometown, an old town on a bluff overlooking the river. Tell us about that. That's right. And St. Francisville, I have that hometown bias, but for being a town of about 1,500 people, it is a pretty incredible testament to what a small town is capable of being. I think a lot of people today get a vision of the future that is very, very city-centric, and we see a lot of small towns in decline. St. Francisville, besides being really vital, it has a lot of the things you'd expect out of a small southern town. You have your antique stores and your preserved antebellum architecture, and those things are big attractions. But you also have several art galleries that are open every day. You have a vibrant festival and musical culture scene. You have, as you come into town, one of the first destinations you can turn off at is this place called Hemingbao, which is basically a Greek revival meditation park with a Japanese garden in it built by a Japanese-American man who is like made that his life's work. So things you wouldn't find in a lot of bigger cities are in this small town. It also is the closest town to a really famous prison, Angola prison. So people pass through to go to Mm. their twice annual prison rodeo. So it's a quite widespread of activities. (laughs) All right. A a twice annual prison rodeo. I think I'll leave that for another interview. This has been (laughs) so interesting. Andrew Ferrier, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your work as a tour guide uh, with the company Free Tours by Foot in New Orleans. Take care. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Andrew Ferrier got an eerie nighttime view of the factories that line the Mississippi River from the town he grew up in, and he tells us about it at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll hear how traveling abroad is going for our listeners in just a bit. But first, we'll get a German view of today's world on Travel with Rick Steves. I just love the idea that you can learn more about your own home a lot of times by leaving it and viewing it from a distance. In a sense, that's what I'd like to do now with this next interview as we're joined by a journalist from Munich who reports on America for many leading news publications in Germany. A couple years ago, journalist Stefan Wagner interviewed me to find out what Americans think about his country. He was writing an article for the leading German news magazine, Der Spiegel. And today, Stefan joins us right here in our Seattle area studio so we can turn the tables and I can interview him about how Germans see our culture and how that might help us to better enjoy his culture. Stefan, thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick, for having me. I was just in Iceland, and I asked a friend there about the political news in his country. And he said their politics is so boring that they just report on American politics instead. What about Germany? What's the news for politics in Germany? I think the biggest news is uh, the rise of a far right-wing party uh, over the last few months. It's called uh, Alternative für Deutschland, Alternative for Germany. And they pretty much, uh, to keep it simple, keep uh, the Trump agenda. And uh, it's it's a force that's become uh, very big now, 20% of the polls right now. Every democracy has a growing right-wing sort of they call it Christian nationalism, which is has nothing to do with Christianity as far as I'm concerned, but a, a growing and right-wing movement that is there. And there must be a fundamental reason. From a German perspective, what is the foundation of that? What is bothering people to embrace that agenda? I believe it's a very similar cause as you have in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's a distrust of elites, if a sense of being... Yeah, unhappy about something, and uh, that gives you a release. It's it's a valve that uh, your steam can go through, so and it's that a your frustration. voice. It's a frustration it's, by people who have no power. It it is a protest vote, and uh, so far, whenever these uh, parties have been in power, it uh, didn't work out so well. 
that's a good way to put it. Uh, what do Germans think about what's going on in American politics when you look at it? What do you see that's constructive and what do you see that makes you sad? I believe a lot of the, the bigger trends are it's great to see that the U.S. is uh, investing more in infrastructure. It's something that doesn't get perceived as big news because you can only see the real effects 20, 30, 40 years from now. And of course, nobody wants to push that because it's not going to pay into your re-election. But I believe a lot of people see this as the probably the biggest legacy of the past few years of your administration, that you actually work on that stuff. And it is said that that's not a political winner because the electorate doesn't have the patience to wait for that to kick in. And it's the same in most countries because you yeah. just don't have any immediate gain. Uh, a German once told me that America should have more political parties than two in order to get things done. Of course, you've got a parliamentary system where you have many parties. Does that make any sense to you? Do you are you frustrated by the fact that you have to have coalitions to have a ruling coalition, or do you think it's it's a good thing to have many parties? It is the foundation, I believe, of democracy, um, that you talk to each other and you find a compromise and a way to go forward, and it's not black or white, but there's always a certain sense of gray in there. And uh, by having a number of uh, different parties in the same government, uh, you have to figure things out and to make I everybody sort of happy. I never thought about that, but that's so true. We have a system where whoever's in, it's one party takes all, and then you don't have to be compromising. It's just, we have 51%, so sit back, we're going to do this, you know, or 60% if you need a super majority. But in Germany, it's almost unheard of that one party would have the majority, Right. I think the biggest party in Germany now has about 24% of support. So, And you um, like that. I think it's a good way to uh, to run a country down. because yeah. you, you, you have to have more than 50% to really make things moving. So you've got to form a coalition, you've got to mm -hmm. have a compromise, you've got to talk to people who might have different ideas of what you think is right. We had four years of President Trump and you had 16 years of Chancellor Angela Merkel. What does that say to you when you think about what was going on in Germany while well, what was going on in America? There is a big yearning for stability in German politics um, and change is something not a lot of people really embrace. If you look at Germany now, the sense is that we've missed a lot of trends, mostly in digitalization, mostly in how to move climate change uh, measures ahead how to reshape society, how to work on our infrastructure. A lot of people say it's been not wasted 16 years, but it's been years that we could have done a little bit more. Mm -hmm. At not the just expense, the, you were just conservative. You were afraid of change. That's correct. It's, it's a lowest yeah. common denominator kind of politics, and it can lead to happiness in a lot of ways, and it can gain you a majority, but it probably doesn't get the country in the right direction. Because if I understand, Angela Merkel started out, people thought she was more conservative than she actually ruled. She came to the center, didn't she? How would you contrast the conservative party in Germany with the conservative party in the United States? The conservative party in Germany uh, is trying to find its way right now, trying to uh, find a way, encountering the far-right radical policies of a party called Alternative für Deutschland, which is the far-right-wing party, and, of course, the more centrist left parties that are in power right now, the Green Party, the Social Democrats, and the uh, Liberal Party. To what degree is your far-right party the ghost of the Nazis and your far-left party the ghost of... Soviet communism? 
I think for the far left party, it's a it's a fact that uh, their main support is in Eastern Germany is from older people who are still sort of nostalgically um, missing the former East Germany, uh, the former socialist uh, East Germany. But um, they also have a lot of support from from the very young. Stefan Wagner is a journalist based in Munich, and he's updating us on what his fellow Germans are concerned with right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His beat includes covering societal trends, travel, science, and politics in North America for the German audience. Stefan's also reported from the U.S. as a foreign correspondent for German media. You'll find his work in prominent German-language print and online publications. Stefan, when America withdraws from leadership in the world, our leadership role, how does that impact Germany and what's the feeling? Is it like great that America's out of the way so Germany can be the leader? Because Germany kind of steps in to be the leader when we're not there. It's definitely going to be a massive vacuum, and I don't think it's a vacuum any other nation on the planet can ever fill, at least in the next 20 to 30 years. I also think Germany isn't really ready for it. I think especially army or defense forces are not set up to uh, for world dominance, which of course has a lot of historic reasons. I believe it's going to be a disaster because then autocratic regimes will use that vacuum to test their limits and uh, it'll be a very, very different world, which is not going to be pleasant for a large part of uh, our world population. There is a big hesitance in taking on responsibility. It's a historic hesitancy to step up and um, yeah, do what you think is right because uh, there have been disastrous effects in the past. You know, weather is really big in the news these days in the United States. Every night I turn on the headlines and it's, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there. How's the weather making headlines in Germany lately? Or is it? It's very similar. And I think there was a, an opinion poll just a, a few months ago. What are the biggest topics in German politics? I think climate change was the biggest topic. How do we cope with it? And, of course, we do have the disasters. We have floodings. We have permafrost um, letting go of mountains. Whole uh, mountain villages are being, are being covered by stone and rock slides. There's a big sense also, who doesn't like a vacation? Um, of where do we go on vacation? Very simple thing. Do we want to go to Greece and sit in 105 degree temperature or hide in a room? So, or do you want to go to Sweden or Iceland? I was just in Sweden and I, I took a still shot of my climate chart on my phone because... Every day it was sunny and 72 degrees, while it was uh, 110 degrees and burning up on the Mediterranean. And these are first-world problems. I mean, when I was in Switzerland, or, yeah, the big talk was the permafrost on the Matterhorn is melting, so nobody can climb it anymore safely. Uh, and then you talk about no more summer skiing, and you talk about it's too hot for the Greek Isles, so I'm going to the fjords. What is Germany doing about climate change? You mentioned just before we started that you flew here to Seattle and you had friends kind of uh, saying, Stefan, are you really going to fly? You're going to contribute to climate change. It's a big discussion, and um, especially the young uh, crowd, they're constantly questioning, do you really have to go that far? Do you have to use a plane? Why don't you take the train? Obviously, for the U.S., that's a, a very difficult option that I opted against in this case. But it's up there all the time. You can't mm -hmm. evade it. Uh, why do you leave the fridge door open? Can't you turn the light off? People are very, very conscious of this. And there's change happening. Uh, Germany stepped out of uh, nuclear power just a few months ago for good. About 58% of our electricity production is now renewable resources. You know, it is interesting in American politics, I suppose anywhere, 
the political discourse is shaped by who's voting and what are people embracing. And if you look at it, climate change hardly registers. World hunger hardly registers. And what registers is things that seem relatively insignificant. What, mm-hmm. what kind of a sign do you put on the bathroom door, you know? We have this political discourse in our country now that we're calling the culture wars, and that's what motivates voters. Is there anything like that in Germany? We do have a gender debate that's just about starting, and I believe we do have uh, maybe a five to ten year delay in the debates reaching us in Germany that you've had here in the U.S. for for quite a while. But to be perfectly honest, I don't think gun ownership or Gender politics or um, uh, abortion are even uh, topics that are major topics right now. It's really climate change. Of, of course, it's immigration for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But climate change, as you said, is is something that touches all of us. Uh, do you want to drown? Uh, do you want to be burned up in a forest fire? Mm-hmm. Do you want to die in a rock slide? It's, uh, it's more than just news on television. I think that's going to break through in America, but I hope it breaks through sooner rather than later. You mentioned immigration. That's a big deal in a lot of countries. I mean, if you look at autocrats anywhere, Poland, Hungary, Turkey, United States, it's fear of immigrants. Germany takes in immigrants. I mean, you've had the long experience with Turks. It's a huge part of your society today. And uh, you've got new immigrant communities. What's the latest feeling, the public reaction to immigration It's a mixed bag. Um, There is the conviction that we do need to do something. Uh, We have a very low birth rate. There's a huge lack of qualified uh, workforce at this rate. And if we don't take in immigration, maybe half a million a year, we're not going to be able to maintain the level of uh, wealth that Germany as a nation, as an industrial nation Mm -hmm. of knowledge workers also has. Now, that's an interesting issue because when Turkey wanted to join the EU, A lot of people wondered, do I really want Turkey in the EU? A lot of business people said, do we really want workers to fill in the fact that we're not having as many kids as we used to have? And anybody that has interest in the economic power of Germany thinks it's nice to have a new 10, 20 million workers. It's going to not work. Um, It's a very simple equation, and um, any economist knows this. But, of course, politics is always rational thoughts and emotional thoughts. And as we all know, it's the emotional thoughts that uh, rule our decisions We did have a massive influx of uh, Ukrainian refugees, and it was very obvious these are refugees. They're not choosing to hang out in Germany and uh, and enjoy the good life there. And everybody stepped up to just help these people. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stefan Wagner. He's a journalist based in Munich. He's joining us now to share a German perspective on issues we're all grappling with. You know, I think one thing that Germany has that other countries don't is a very dark history to learn from. How have Germans learned from their history when it comes to dealing with challenges today? And when I talk about history, I'm talking about Hitler, Nazism, World War II, the Holocaust. It's been a big topic, of course, in our education system, in schools, in museums. Um, People are fully aware of it. But as it it mostly is, um, some people try to avoid these news and people are not watching these programs. There is a sort of a revisionist culture that is pushing the fact that other countries have started wars, that there has been genocides in other nations as well, uh-huh. um, trying to, in a way, yeah, minimize what has happened in Germany 80 years ago. My dad fought in the Second World War. He was fairly old when he had me, and um, I, I still looked at his scars, and uh, it was a very much present part of my growing up. 
And uh, I think it's different if you if you haven't had those experiences. I'll never forget standing in the museum at the Matthausen concentration camp, and there was a, a German family on vacation, and I watched the German father with the parental responsibility of standing there with his little son in front of the gas canisters that, that uh, contributed to the you know, systematic murder of millions of people. And he had to explain that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that this was his grandpa's politics. That must be a very interesting challenge for German parents. There's nothing we can do but just go there, read, learn, kneel down and cry. And then how do you implement that today in making sure it doesn't happen in your country? Is there some sense that the electorate has to be tuned in to the importance of their vote? I would say bring your children, um, teach them, educate them about the reality of history. And um, it's very easy to avoid painful facts, painful history. It's very easy to just say, oh, it's ancient history. It happened 80 years ago when I was born in 67. It was 22 years after the war. So there was a way different presence of the history. It was not old history. It was fairly recent. So I think There's no other way of uh, just dealing with it, exposing yourself, going to the concentration camp. So there's a determination in Germany to not cover it up, not ignore it, but even if it's painful to deal with it. We've got the same thing going on in our country as people look at our history because we've got some dark history also. I think it's really interesting to note that until recently, Germany did not have these docu-centers where you you really embrace the history. Until recently, school teachers conveniently ran out of school days before they would get to the Hitler chapter. But I have a feeling that's changed now and that you start with that so you get to it for sure because you re- maybe it's because grandpa's gone now and you don't have that relative sitting at the dinner table who was part of that horrible German political movement. There's a big sense of urgency because we can see that um, all these ideas, they're still there. They're not buried in the past. Uh-huh. They're still alive and uh, they're being covered by years of uh, of history. And it, it's high time we unearth the ideas and reevaluate what was uh, said and done back then and actually make a different move now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stefan Wagner. He's a journalist from Munich, and he's dedicated his career to writing articles so Germans can better understand America, and he's helping us better understand issues that both of our societies are dealing with. You know, to finish on a little cheerier note, Stefan, I think for a long time Germans were not inclined to wave their flag, and national pride can be kind of a, either a menacing thing or a charming and joyful thing. In what scenario... Do you enjoy seeing an American flag waving in the wind? And in what scenario do you enjoy seeing a German flag waving in the wind? The biggest change probably happened in 2006 at the um, Soccer World Cup uh, that was happening in Germany. All of a sudden, um, the producers of German flags uh, ran out of steam. They couldn't even keep up with demand. And that was a big trigger for Germans to also reevaluate the symbols of their um, democracy and who we are. We're not just uh, gloomy Nazis. We're not concentration camps only. There's also a new generation of Germans, and they have a right to have their own country without forgetting about the past. And uh, I think it makes me happy to see flags now, which I wouldn't have said 30 or 40 years ago. And it's the same in the U.S. I think you have a fantastic nation, a very proud nation, and it's uh, dangerous and, and makes me fear the worst if the American flag is taken by a part of the population and not the whole 
country which it stands for. Wow. Thank you for your perspective on these important issues, Stefan Wagner. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. There's more of our conversation with Stefan on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. What's it been like for you to get back to traveling again during a year that's been crowded with so-called revenge travelers and plenty of disruptions? We're at 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. Just think about it. You and I survived the pandemic. And if we're lucky, our friends and family did too. Now that we've gotten back to traveling again, I'd like to hear how it's been going for you. Are you putting your travel plans back in place to see the world? Let's see what we can learn from the experiences of our fellow travelers at 877-333-7425. You can also reach us by email. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. John's calling in from Trenton in New Jersey. Hey, John, thanks for calling. Hey, happy travels to you. You're back on the road after the pandemic? Finally. I was so happy to be out. Uh, we went to Aruba this year. Aruba. Whoa, in the Caribbean. Have you been there before? This was our sixth time there. Sixth time. What is it about Aruba that keeps you going back out of all those places? Uh, see, the beach is beautiful. It's so nice to walk around on Palm Beach. And at a certain point, just familiarity. It is nice to go back to a place where you feel like it's, it's an old home, isn't it? You probably know what to do and what to eat and where you want to stay. Do you go with your, just uh, your family or what? Yeah, wife and two kids. And when you take your kids, you've taken your kids there many times. What's their favorite thing to do? Beach during the day and ice cream at nighttime. Beach in the day, ice cream at night. Boy, from a parenting point of view, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, I like it. (laughs) Beach in the day, ice cream at night. Uh, Now, Aruba is like, it's a Dutch colony, right? Correct, that's correct. Is that still there? Is it apparent when you're there? Not really. No. People are aware of the king and queen, of course, of Holland. Yeah. And there's the handful of Dutch restaurants. Otherwise, most people would not even know that. Okay. Um, What was it like as far as the whole COVID thing? Was it at all noticeable? Not at all. Uh, Nobody was wearing a mask, nor was it required. Uh, Not the airport, not taxis, not the hotels, not restaurants. One thing I've noticed um, in traveling in many areas is there's just... um, it's more complicated for small businesses and big businesses to organize their staffing. Did you feel like restaurants could be fully staffed up to meet the demand? They probably, as you said, I don't believe they were fully staffed because there were uh, some waiting. Uh, we try to go to dinner not at the high times, we'll say. We try to be at dinner by you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock, yeah. where most people are going to dinner at 8, 9 o'clock. So we try to beat the crowd that way. A lot of people are complaining that after COVID, prices have seemed to really jump. And portions are smaller. So a combination of both. You get hit both ways. Really? So when you say portions yeah. are smaller, what are you thinking of? What I mean, close your eyes and say portions are smaller. You're looking at a plate with what on it? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a restaurant that I absolutely love in Aruba where they used to give me 15 pieces of escargot. Uh-huh. And this year was only 10. Oh, man. You lost a 30 year snails. <laughs> a lot of people, they go for half a dozen, and I feel like I'm really splashing out if I get a dozen. A dozen is for rookies. Ah, so probably you're used to pay X for 15, and you're probably paying a little more than X for 10 now. Not only that, I noticed that a lot of restaurants now, 
when you go to pay your tab, they have a service charge in there, and they want to tip on top of that. Yeah. I don't know. That's between every every person and their own sort of ethics, but I'm really getting a little bit, a little bit bad attitude about aggressive uh, tipping and charging and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I find that kind of widespread, and it's sort of a, in the wake of the pandemic, it's even worse. It definitely is. The way they described it, the service charge, which is 15%, is for the whole staff, right. or the tip is for your specific server. Yeah. Well, what do you do? Yeah, I always focus on 20%, regardless whether it's one person or 20 people. Okay, so you, you figure 20% is a good tip when you're vacationing in the Caribbean, and if they if they add 20% to the bill, for, in your mind, the tip is there, and if it's 10%, you'll yeah. add 10% more. Yeah, so basically when they give us 15% service charge, yeah. I just add 5% to the tip. Yeah. So total comes out to 20%. All right. Hey, John, what's your one tip to offer people who are thinking about going to Aruba or some Caribbean destination? you got to go. It is heaven on earth. Well, thank goodness heaven on earth survives after the pandemic, and thanks for reporting in. Take care, John. Thank you. Lynn is calling in from Tamarack in Florida. Lynn, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Have you had some travels lately? Well, the minute I got my COVID um, vaccination, my husband and I were out the door and we traveled, traveled, traveled like crazy. And on one of the occasions, we decided to take a cruise and it was a back-to-back cruise, you know, for two weeks. And then people got off in Copenhagen and new people came on and we stayed on and the cruise made us take a COVID test after two weeks. And they called my room afterwards, and they told me I had COVID. I mean, I was shocked. No. And the next thing you know, Mr. Hazmat Suit came to my door. And because last year there weren't that many people cruising, there was an entire floor that was just for the COVID, which was me. And it said, red zone, do not enter. And they gave me a, a room to myself. And I called my husband. I said, when you're in Copenhagen, get me a test because I'm not sick. Ah. And he got me a test. He gave it to the front desk. Mr. Hazmat suit brought it to me, knocked on the door, ran away. And I took a test. And it's like being a little bit pregnant. You got that line. Yeah. You have COVID. And I was stuck in that room. So you were still testing positive then. Yeah. (laughs) And, And, you know, I had just... Yeah. Finished eight miles in uh, Stockholm. I mean, I felt like a million dollars. So I was out doing everything with COVID, not knowing I had COVID. Right. And then I had to stay in the room afterwards. But you had to put your towels in a hazmat bag. Oh, my goodness. I mean, these are the kind of things. <laughs> nobody well, would know this. And like I said, nobody knew there was even a, a floor on the ship right. where we were stashed. But um, the other COVIDs and I went on the balcony and we bemoaned our fate. And the cruise ship couldn't do enough for us. Uh, they brought us, like, minis, uh, cartons of them. And I really don't drink, but, hey, when you're stuck the, in a room... So you got all these mini, these mini liquors, huh? all the little Irish creams and gins and whiskeys. <laughs> and strawberries dipped in chocolate. They couldn't do enough for you. But, but like I said, I had a nice little balcony. Yeah. With your, with your friends across the way on the next balcony who were also COVIDs. Oh, we would talk to each other. There was nothing else we could do. We weren't allowed to in each other's room, but yeah. um, we 
just became friends, but there was nothing else you could do. But hey, I got a credit for another cruise for all the the ports I couldn't go to. Well, Lynn from Florida, if if I had COVID, I would want you in the next uh, stateroom because we could drink those little liquors and just uh, have a great conversation right over the balcony. It would have been fun. <laughs> Lynn, thank you for calling and reporting on your experience. Happy future travels. Thank you very much. We're making up for lost time by checking in with you, our Travel with Rick Steves listeners and fellow travelers, about how your travel plans have been working out. Are you able to pick up where you left off when the pandemic put all of our plans on hold? There's so much to talk about, we'll have to get to more callers next week in a part two to this segment. Right now, Julie's calling in, and she's calling in from Northampton in Massachusetts. Hey, Julie. Hi, Rick. Thanks for calling. What's up? Well, you know, I was just thinking about you last week because I was slicing up your guidebook for Italy. I was slicing up a guidebook for Scandinavia just a couple weeks ago. Isn't that fun to cut it up? It's very rewarding, as long as you have a very sharp razor blade. You need a razor blade. You need to break the spine of it so that you don't cut pages you don't want to cut. And then you slice that thing up, and what you've got is a little booklet instead of a giant brick to carry around when you're out and about in those different cities, right? Exactly. I did this in Spain, and um, in fact, I was standing in the Prado reading your guidebook entry on a particular masterpiece and hearing it narrated, those very same words narrated by a gentleman who was um, reading it from his guidebook to his wife. And it was a moment of connection between me and that couple because, you know, I held up what I was reading. They they saw it. They held up what they were reading. And we we had a little, you know. It's kind of an extended uh, family. Yeah, people are, they have something in common. And if it's my guidebook, I'm thrilled with that. But, you know, it's just, it's, you have, uh, you have friends you didn't know you had when you're sharing those cultural wonders of Europe and the natural wonders. Exactly. So where all did you go on your trip? Um, So I've been traveling since, 2021. So as soon as things started to open up again, and I just got back from England, and it was uh, my 12th visit and my friend's second visit. We had gone together in January of 2020. Mm-hmm. She loved it, and she said, let's, let's come back, and we all know what happened to those plans. Yeah. And so this was our return visit, and we had a wonderful time, two weeks, um, independent travel. Nice. Now, you were, you've been there 12 times. Your friend had been there two times. You must have been sort of the tour guide and actually having the joy of showing her a few things that you had already seen. Yeah, we did a combination of um, London, which we both love and which I know fairly well at this point, and a place that was new to both of us, uh, which was York and the Yorkshire Dales, mm. and then a place that... I had visited once and loved and wanted to go back for longer, and that was the Sussex coast. Oh, nice. How have you noticed that England has changed over the years from a sightseeing point of view? Right. Well, the thing about, especially London, I visited London 12 times. It's, as the saying goes, always changing, Mm -hmm. always the same, Mm -hmm. right? So there's always history and architecture and, you know, royalty and fantastic food. Because since I've been going, the food has been good. I, I wasn't visiting London during the dark, you, you know, were back years. in the, uh, the um, soggy uh, French fries and mushy peas days. Right. So I would say that it's, it was definitely more crowded yeah. uh, this year. Well, there's, that's been an actual problem in 2023. Uh, that was a big discussion in 2019 before COVID was the crowds. And 2023, it's sort of like revenge travel. Everybody whose trips were canceled, they're back over there now with a vengeance. 
and people are, uh, unfortunately, people go to the same places. Exactly. So luckily in 2020, we had seen the big sites in London. Right. And so we really only booked a very few things. So we decided we wanted to go back to Westminster Abbey. So we booked that just so we wouldn't have to wait in line. And we definitely needed to book a restaurant for for supper. I've noticed that's a change. As a matter of fact, when I'm updating my guidebooks now, I'm I'm sort of uh, inclined to make a little sidebar on the first page of each chapter saying, what do I need to book before I get there? And it's not just the major uh, sightseeing attractions like Westminster Abbey or or whatever. It's also restaurants. If there's a restaurant you want to go to that's that's a kind of a destination restaurant, not a Michelin star dress up and spend a hundred dollars restaurant, but just a good popular restaurant, it'll book out. You can't just stumble in there in the evening. You just got to book it a few days in advance. So that's a good idea. Even just yeah, even just a few days in advance, even just the day before yeah. can can yeah. make it doable. I and mean, we we were at a lovely Italian restaurant that we were really enjoying, but. People were walking in and getting turned away. Yeah, I've, I, it's a different way of thinking, and it's a post-COVID way of thinking now, and I don't know why, but part of it is, I think, um, staffing is a challenge for restaurants, and they don't, they're not able to accommodate as many people at the same time. And the other thing is there's more people traveling, and they're all going to the same places. But good restaurants where there's a good energy will be full, and that's a good thing. And if you simply call, a lot of us think, I'm in a foreign country, I don't speak the language. That's no big deal. Just give them a phone call or you can book it online. But they speak English and they'd love to hold a seat for you. And then it's just like booking a, a restaurant where you live in Northampton. Exactly. Exactly. Can I tell you a fun cross-cultural COVID story? Oh, please do. So um, my friend and I were wearing our masks in certain situations. So we decided that we would wear our masks in, in the tube if our car was crowded. Mm-hmm. So we were wearing masks in the, in the tube. And later my friend said, did you notice people are really looking at us funny? And I said, well, no, but we're wearing sort of nicely patterned KN95 masks, and maybe people just haven't seen those masks before. Well, actually, I was wrong. Come to find out from a local that Londoners only wear a mask in public if they're not feeling well. Ah. So I think that's what people were yeah. sizing us up for. They were looking, But we weren't coughing, we weren't sneezing because no. we weren't sick. But I think they were looking at us, and so we're like, okay cultural learning experience. That's a good lesson for all of us because I wear my mask on airplanes when the airplane is on the ground. I I have a a feeling that the ventilation is not kicked into gear and so thorough when the airplane is on the ground. So I put my mask on on the boarding process. And just on my last flight, I sat down and, and the woman next to me was wearing a mask too. And I thought both of us wondered if the other person was wearing a mask because we were sick. And I had to tell her and then she told me. It was like a relief. Oh, good. Neither of us are sick. We just like to wear our mask when we're on the plane. <laughs> and it was, exactly. it was it's important exactly. to let people know because it's um, realistic to think if somebody is wearing a mask, they might be wearing it because they don't want to give give the germs that they're suffering with. Exactly. And and Rick, can I say that I think your your logic is excellent with regard to wearing your mask before the plane's up in the air because the ventilation is wonderful when the plane's in the air. Yeah, and the I air just, is exchanged many, many times per hour, more than any building most of us, you know, have uh, business of being in, but not when it's on the ground. No, and I'm not going to be mask shamed out of what I think is safe. And for me, I just am very careful about choosing an atmosphere that is well ventilated and uh, is not too crowded. And if I have to be somewhere where there's not good ventilation and a lot of crowds, I'll just pop on my mask. And I've got my mask in my pocket all the time when I travel. But these days, you know, we've got, we're taking our tours this year and we're having half the COVID incidents of last year. 
It's still there. Last year, we took 30,000 people, and 4% of them got COVID while they were on our tours. This year, 2% of them have had COVID. That's one out of 50. The good news is nobody went to the doctor. Nobody had to go to the hospital. It's just, you know, you got COVID, so you have to isolate. And it interrupts your trip for a few days. But um, it's just a reality that we have to live with, and we have to take some common sense measures to stay healthy. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, you must love England. I do, and Italy's a close second. Ah, well, we're in the same sort of uh, mindset there. Thanks so much, and happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye. Zach in Boston emails us at radio at ricksteves.com to report on three trips he's had in the last couple of years, and he's saying, basically, his travels have been going well, including visiting Spain last year. He writes, My wife and I ventured to Spain in February of 2022 while pandemic procedures were still in place. Getting there was surprisingly easy, but getting back home was kind of a pain. During our last day in Córdoba, we tracked down a clinic that was doing COVID tests for our return to the States, and it burned a couple of hours from our day, but it turned out to be a memorable and funny experience. Yeah, no, that's true, Zach. Um, I found that it's hard now to find a place that'll have a test because Europe is just moving on from that whole COVID scene. And when you finally do find one, it is often something you'll remember for a long, long time. Zach also writes about a trip he had earlier this year. He writes, In April 2023, I brought 90 students and staff to London, Normandy, and Paris for a seven-day tour. Our last field trip to Europe had been in 2019, so this trip was long-awaited. And Zach, you're not alone on that. I mean, teachers and parents with long-awaited trips for their students and their kids, they finally got it together in 2023. I did. I did exactly what I was hoping to do in 2020. It had to wait, just like you, until 2023. And finally, Zach writes about a third trip he took. He writes, And this past July, the family and I visited Nice and its surrounding towns. This time, we brought our three-year-old and our one-year-old. Needless to say, it was a lot of work, but worth every effort. We had a spectacular time. It's been really inspiring and encouraging that Europeans still welcome us with open arms. And to see many of our favorite places open and our friends doing well brought us great joy. Well, that's my takeaway, Zach, also. Getting back to Europe now, Europe is so thankful that we're there. There's sort of a collective sigh of relief. Everybody's back in the saddle. The hotels and the restaurants and the museums are full and full of life. That's what I love. The streets, the energy of Europe is back. And COVID is ancient history in a lot of people's minds. Let's hope it stays that way. Kein Auto, keine Chaussee, und niemand in unserer Nähe. Sieben bald, nur ich und du, der Herrgott drückt ein Auge zu, denn er schenkt uns ja zum Glücklichsein, Wochenend und Sonnenschein. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tappen, Casimora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to WWNO in New Orleans for their help this week. You'll find more online at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a community of well-traveled friends who love sharing tips and comparing notes. That's our online community. It's called the Rick Steves Travel Forum. 
You can read trip reports, reviews, and share itinerary planning questions. Peruse the topics or post your own submissions. It's at ricksteves.com and you're invited.